Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and this week I'm going to be talking to someone about how to make DIY pharmaceutical allopathic medicine. And uh, this podcast, Live Like the World is Dying, is a proud member of the Channel Zero network of anarchist podcasts. And here's a jingle from another podcast on the network. Do, do, do. I'm going to put a thing here. Rebel Steps is a podcast about taking action. Season one offered insights into how individuals can join movements. Season two focuses on the ways people can work together to build these movements. Organizing in groups presents many challenges. How do you care for each other and protect each other in the midst of political struggle? How do you lift up the voices of everyone in your group? How do you work through the inevitable disagreements? All of these questions have complicated answers. As I explore these questions, you'll hear voices and stories from my community in New York City, spotlighting a range of organizers from the Metropolitan Anarchist Coordinating Council, Outlive Them, Pop Gem, Democratic Socialists of America Libertarian Socialist Caucus, and more. Just like the first season, I return to Paulo Freire's quote, what can we do today so that we can do tomorrow what we cannot do today? but this time with the realization that building our capacity will necessarily happen alongside others. Find Rebel Steps on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts, and check us out on Twitter or Patreon. So instead of a content warning, I want to give a bit of a disclaimer. The the things that are talked about in this episode in particular, but also in many of the episodes, are both illegal and potentially dangerous. And you should think about that before you do these things. You should not run out and do things that are illegal, necessarily. Whenever laws are bullshit, but they also have an impact, and you need to think about what you're trying to accomplish and whether or not you can accomplish that if the the law interferes with your ability to continue to pursue your dreams and passions when you're not arrested. Sometimes you're going to reach a different conclusion than other times when it comes to that particular calculation. So don't break the law just for the heck of it, unless you want to break the law just for the heck of it. Who am I to tell you what to do? But then also, a lot of this information is dangerous. A lot of this information is just kind of enough information to give you an idea of what's possible. And I intend that as an idea of what's possible so that you do more research and you figure out what action do you want to take and what those consequences and what consequences those actions might have. So don't run out because this podcast said you can technically do this thing where you synthesize this drug and then take it. That doesn't mean that you should do that. That means that if that's something you think that you might need to do, you should go through the work to figure out whether or not to figure out what means by which you want to do that. And I, yet at the same time, I, I do believe that spreading this kind of information is important. I think that dangerous information is important. I think that we need to develop our own sense of agency and our own sense of uh, control over our lives. And I believe that information that we could behave badly with is an important part of that. And also, I mean, most of this information is designed for being used for good. And that's even cooler. What is good and evil? I don't know. I'm not going to pontificate on that to this overly long disclaimer. Welcome to the podcast. Okay. 
So uh, would you like to introduce yourself with your, your name, your pronouns, and then maybe political or organizational affiliations that you feel like are relevant to what we're going to be talking about today? Sure. Uh, I'm Michael Laufer. I go by whatever pronouns the speaker feels comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And I am the chief spokesperson for the fourth use vinegar collective that works to bring medicines and medical technologies to people who need them, but don't have them. And never mind how we're an anarchist collective. And, uh, I guess that it's a good start. Okay. Um, so one of the questions that I get asked the most when I, when I talk about prepping, which I do as, you know, part of the show and one of the main questions I get asked has to do with uh, basically with disability and with how society as exists is one of the things that allows a lot of people to continue to live, um, specifically their access to, well, in, among other things, certain medicines. And uh-huh. I, I get asked that enough that I was like, okay, I, I really need to look into this. I've always kind of held this sort of pithy thing that basically anything that society does we can do because we are society. Um, right. But I thought it would be good to kind of go more directly to the source and talk to someone who has been doing this kind of work. So I'm wondering if you could kind of introduce yourself, introduce what the four thieves vinegar collective is and the kind of work you've been doing. So the sort of flagship project is the apothecary micro lab. It's an, it's an open source automated chemical reactor that seeks to sort of help people through the parts of synthetic chemistry that can be a little intimidating so that people can do things on their own. Um, the idea being that you can manufacture the active pharmaceutical ingredient in whatever it is that you need, and then you can compound your own medicine from there. Um, we do do a lot of other stuff surrounding access to medicines and medical technologies that uh, are sort of adjoint to that. Um, but that's the main one. And that's the one that I think gets a lot of people excited. And I think is sort of <clears throat> close to what you're talking about specifically in terms of the, the sort of intimidation factor mm-hmm. that you often get when you're thinking about something so infrastructural as the pharmaceutical industry and somebody has some specialized medication and there's this question of like, well, okay, if I can't buy it, however would I get it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It definitely feels like a a magic pill to me, like a magic, you know, I, I see myself as a, a reasonably competent Jack of all trades and I'm, you know, podcasting from within a cabin in the woods I built with solar power that I, generate i didn't build the solar panels themselves you know but i I see myself as relatively competent but you talk about here's how you make the building blocks of organic chemistry and it's not that my brain fogs over but it's that my brain tells myself from decades of experience that you know i've never been told that that's something that i could do so it's hard for me to imagine that i could possibly do it right well we're you know we're very conditioned uh socially to think that that's something that's closed shop that it's a specialized thing that it's not something you can do without decades of experience Mm -hmm. and specialized training that's very expensive and letters after your name and you know going through a nightmarish patriarchal system (laughs) that's going to sort of beat your ego into submission before they let you into their little exclusive club Mm -hmm. but 
one thing that I try to remind people who get a sense of that intimidation is to remember that if you think about how organic chemistry was done, you know, not that long ago as, as recently as maybe a hundred years ago, mm -hmm. all of the specialized things that people say that you need didn't exist. There were sort of these old school wet chemistry methods and they were done by people who didn't have, you know, decades of experience or specialized. Your pharmacist was just a guy who kind of learned how to put things together and ordered some stuff. And he had a little bit of glassware and he'd been shown a few things and he could build most of the medicines you needed. Now, there is a limitation to that. Mm -hmm. Right. If if you're working with medicines that are biological in nature, things get a lot more complicated. If you're not dealing with small molecules anymore, then it's not just wet chemistry and and things get far more complicated. But for most regular things, if you're not talking about something that's incredibly sophisticated, some immunotherapy that requires genetic engineering or or uh, or something that's very complicated, that's derived from a genetically modified organism that you'd have to grow and then filter. Wet chemistry still works the way it always has because that's a fundamental property of the way that physics works on a molecular mm -hmm. level. Um, it's not as quick. It's not as... Um, it's not as it doesn't lend itself quite as much to an industry without a whole bunch of machinery. So you, you're not going to churn out, you know, a hundred thousand pills in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. um, but if you need enough for one person or a few people, you certainly can do that yourself because again, it just hasn't changed that much. Can you give an example of like, what are some of the, what are the, some of the drugs that you all have, experience or that you're ah okay well before i get into that what is the legality of this and what is the legality of spreading this information <laughs> um, yeah well that's that's a that's a gray area at mm -hmm. best um but you know and we kind of operate on what i call the the darker side of heather in the gray area mm -hmm. um <laughs> in a lot of cases and also it varies depending on where you are mm -hmm. So um, let me answer your questions in reverse order. The first mm -hmm. thing about spreading the information um, is that from a, from a criminal standpoint, when you talk about spreading information in places that at least espouse to have some sort of freedom of communication, freedom of speech, that should be covered under those laws. Not, mm -hmm. not every country has those and plenty of countries have those, but, only on paper. Um, and so you still can end up um, with some issues because again, they're, they're sort of, when you talk about legality, there are two questions. The first question is, are you running afoul of the law in a technical sense? Mm -hmm. And the question, the second question is, are you going to incite the scrutiny and or wrath of the legal system such that they're going to decide it's worth their time and energy to come after you. Right. So that to say, 
distributing information is fairly safe in most cases. Um, you you really have to rile a lot of people up who are very powerful before that starts to shake down in most places. Um, there is a secondary concern uh, which surrounds intellectual property law, which is far stickier. It's not criminal. It's That's a question of are you infringing on somebody's patent rights? What kind of stuff are you making? Or not you, obviously you would never break the law, but what kind of stuff would people be making with this micro lab that, uh, that has, has, you know, what, what is four thieves? What, what are you making? What is that? Well, the things that we, the things that we focus on, Mm -hmm. um, are ailments, which have, uh, a lot of impact and have very low accessibility. Um, so we've the main things that we started looking at when we began were things related to HIV, hepatitis C, drug overdose, and abortion, because these mm-hmm. are things that are more or less solved problems in the pharmaceutical field, but are still very hard to access for the people in the greatest amount of need. Mm-hmm. Um, more recently, we've been looking into some of the drugs for orphan diseases because these are things where there are these incredible therapies that have been developed, but the the Orphan Disease Act has allowed intellectual property control and price controls to be sort of off the leash. And What's an orphan disease? Like, so... The legal definition of an orphan disease is a disease that affects fewer than a certain number of people worldwide. It's something like 100,000. I think in the U.S. it's like if there are fewer than 100,000 people in the U.S. who have it, it qualifies as an orphan disease. I'm not sure about that number, but there's some cutoff. And so if you look at something that's fairly rare, the problem from a capitalist point of view is that nobody's going to want to do research on this because mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to gouge a lot of people mm-hmm. for their hard-earned cash. And so it's not worth the research. And so in a sort of allegedly altruistic attempt to rectify this, there were laws passed saying, well, if you as a good-hearted capitalists decide to take the horrendous risk of developing a drug for one of these orphan diseases, we're going to allow you to hold on to the patent for much, much longer than you normally would be able to, and you will have no price restrictions on how much you can charge for this. <laughs> That's the marketplace solution to orphan diseases is you can gouge as much as you want. Right. Okay. And so- That tracks. The, Yeah. And the tragedy of this is that you get the, and and of course this is then compounded by the fact that the research ultimately is done usually by academics with federal money. Mm -hmm. And then it's purchased by the private sector who can then just go off and running with it. Mm -hmm. And so all of the logic just falls through. And at the end of the day, what you end up with is you end up with somebody who has some very rare disease where they are, they can go 
in sort of a miracle from being bedridden to being relatively functional with just, you know, this regular medication, Mm -hmm. but it's going to cost them a third of a million dollars per year if they'd like to do that. And Mm -hmm. because things that are not fatal don't really take as much traction in the public discourse, Mm -hmm. there isn't a lot of public backlash about it, despite the fact that when you have something that just makes you ill, despite the fact that it doesn't deprive you of your life, it deprives you of being able to interact with the things that make life meaningful. Right. And it's just as tragic. Um, So we try to look at those as well. Those are of course, typically much more sophisticated medications and they require, Mm -hmm. um, they're a little bit more difficult to reverse engineer, but they're out there. Um, so those are the sorts of things that we look at because again, you know, there's, there's no reason for us to go after things that are easy to access. The whole idea is that there's this sort of access gap Mm -hmm. and it's like, okay, if there are people who desperately need things, but can't get them, how do we, how do we fix that? And so that's sort of the target. Okay. So, so what are some of the success stories? Like I, I have heard the, the main one I heard about when I think you all were in the media a lot about two years ago, or at least the media that I read, um, I think was maybe a DIY EpiPen, for example, that people could make themselves. Um, right. Is that, yeah. is that a, is that a thing? Is that real? Like if I it's took the time real. to learn this, I could make my own EpiPen. Yeah, you could do that. I mean, you could probably do it while we're on the phone. Uh, I mean, uh, or if you were in a city and you could walk down to uh, mm-hmm. your local drugstore, you could do it. It's it's a very, very, very simple process. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the things that sort of widened our scope. So a ways back, um, there was this huge outcry because Mylan decided to crank up the price on the EpiPen Mm -hmm. and it was, it was this big deal because, you know, Heather Bresch was lying to Congress on live TV and everybody was watching and we got a lot of people who were sort of hitting us up through the website saying, Hey, why aren't you doing something about the EpiPen? Mm -hmm. And we kept writing back being like, I mean, that's, (laughs) kind of not what we're doing, but thanks for reaching out. And like people just kept writing in like, why aren't you doing something about that? Why don't you? And so finally I went on our encrypted web board that we used to communicate at the time. And I was like, Hey everybody, what do you think? Should we do something about this? And everybody said, yes. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's put everything on hold and let's try Mm -hmm. to figure out how to, unfuck this problem mm-hmm. and it, it it took us a few weeks to sort of sort it out at first we were looking at like okay how do you manufacture epinephrine and then it was like that's not the problem you can get epinephrine for, for a dollar a mm-hmm. vial like and it's like okay so what's the deal it's like well there's this auto injector that's under patent and for some reason, they just, you know, barrier access. Just saying, okay, we're mm-hmm. the only ones who have this ap- approved, so let's crank up the price. And 
But we all thought, well, this is ridiculous. There have to be auto injectors for other things. Let's just hijack one of those and, and we'll, we'll, we'll figure this out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and ultimately, like before you even get into this, the easiest solution is you just get yourself an Altoids tin and you put a syringe, a needle and a vial in it and you just give an intramuscular injection, mm-hmm. which is just not that hard. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, you can if you've ever stabbed anything like it's, you know, it's, I mean, th- there are ways to do it that are better and are going to be less painful. But at mm-hmm. the end of the day, if somebody's dying and you give a very bad intramuscular injection, that's okay, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> um, but the thing that really makes the EpiPen special is the same sort of thing that we were looking at with the micro lab, and it's, it's a design problem. Mm-hmm. You've got something that makes people not afraid to use it because the interface is simple. And the hard part is automated, right? You've got this thing where you just push it in. And if you do it correctly, mm-hmm. like it does the injection for you. It's pre-mixed. It's pre-measured. Everything's fine. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. I mean, that's, that's all well and good. And I get it, right? That's the thing that made um, computers accessible when the Macintosh came out. That's the thing that made um, rapid prototyping accessible when... MakerBot created 3D printers and right. on down the line. So, okay. So the question was, all right, how do, how do we figure out how to make an auto injector that doesn't cost $600 and mm-hmm. can't be that hard? Um, surprisingly, there aren't a lot of other things with auto injectors. There's basically an auto injector for chemical weapons uh, antidotes that is used by the Israeli government, like the Israeli special forces has those. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was one other, there's a, there's a glucogen pen that's designed for diabetics. If they start to go into insulin shock, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't work with a syringe. There's sort of like a baggie that it squeezes. So we weren't going to be able to use that either. Mm -hmm. And, kind of were like, well, all right, are we going to have to design this from scratch? We started looking at the patents. It was kind of a mess. And then one of one of the members of Four Thieves found that there's one company um, that makes a reloadable auto-injector for needle-phobic diabetics. Hmm. And it's this really cool little device. It's just uh, it, it surrounds your syringe Mm -hmm. you set it for needle depth and you drop your syringe in and you you load the spring and then you screw it shut and you press a little button that releases the safety and then you press it into whatever you inject and it does the injection and Mm -hmm. we thought okay great um the problem (laughs) is that when you're injecting insulin you're using a very thin needle, you're using a very small amount, and you're using a very tiny syringe. So it only fits very, very tiny syringes. Now, mm-hmm. at first blush, this seems like it's not a problem because when you're giving an epinephrine injection, you're giving three-tenths of a milliliter of fluid. So you don't need a big syringe. So cool, mm-hmm. no big deal. 
The problem is that unlike diabetic injection with insulin, where you're doing a subcutaneous injection into your fat layer, you're doing an intramuscular injection. So it's deeper, so right? It's deeper. You need a larger gauge needle. Um, and you need some way to marry the large gauge needle with the small syringe, which typically doesn't happen. Wait, what's the difference between a syringe and a needle in this case? So the syringe is the device that holds the fluid and has the mm. plunger that moves the fluid. Okay. The needle it just attaches to the front. Okay. And that's the part that actually breaches the skin and you know carries the fluid inside okay. the body. I would definitely need one of these things if I was diabetic because I am uh I'm I'm basically everything that's the inside of bodies phobic. So <laughs> needles are uh-huh. certainly included in that. Which is funny because then whenever I go to like give blood or whatever, they they look at my piercings and they're like, "You're not afraid of needles." And I'm like, "Yeah, that one came out the other side. It like, yeah, <laughs> it didn't it didn't stop and like either add or subtract from my body, you know?" Right, right. There's a yeah. It's it's interesting the way that gets simplified in the minds of most healthcare workers of being like, "Oh, you do strange things. You are fine." Like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> That was done in a very different context by a very different type of person. <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay, so uh, so you were saying so you, you had to marry the um, the larger needle to the smaller syringe in a way that hadn't been really done before or done much or something. Right, or like we didn't know how. And, mm-hmm. and so the interesting thing is that there's two types of couplings that you tend to see on the ends of syringes. One's called lure lock, are two little wings on the needle and it screws in mm-hmm. to the fitting on the syringe. That's for the bigger ones. And then you see lure slip, which is there's just sort of a tapered cone on the tip of the syringe and you just sort of press fit it in. Um, and that's the one that you see on the smaller ones. So you've got this lure lock connector. On so it's your a plumbing problem. Right, you right. You it's, it's like how do, how do you make yeah. these right? How do you make these play play nice with each other? Mm-hmm. Um, and like and everything else we'd solved, right? We figured out everything else, but it's just like how do you get this damn big needle on this tiny syringe so that everything can work? And you you have the lure lock on the big needle, and you've got the lure slip on the tiny syringe. And as it turns out, lure lock has a second part in it that allows it to fit onto lure slip but this doesn't seem to be very evident in the literature Mm -hmm. and we just stumbled upon it by luck and one of us just said oh just stick just shove it on it works and then we looked at it we're like oh cool problem solved (laughs) and so you can go and buy the autoject 2 um for 30 bucks Mm -hmm. online and then you can go to any pharmacy and get a one milliliter syringe and a, a big gauge needle. I don't remember what it was we were ended up settling on, but you know, mm-hmm. something for intramuscular. And you just stick these together, you drop it in the you and you're done. And it's done. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've I've uh I've heard some good stories of people who've used it to good effect and people who've seen it used by third parties to good effect. So Okay. Um uh, yeah, so hopefully that that saves some lives, and uh, I sleep a little better knowing that uh, <laughs> we we took the time to do that. Yeah. So, 
and the information on how to do that is on your all's website or where where would people mm-hmm. find that yeah so on the website there's a there's a section uh about the EpiPen that'll or the epi pencil as we call mm-hmm. it that will walk you through the legally distinct everything. from EpiPen. well i don't think it's <laughs> legally distinct. it's kind of a finger in the eye of saying hey okay. nice nice try what you created is not a big deal and yeah. it doesn't it doesn't warrant a 600 hundred dollar price tag mm-hmm. and the the other thing is that i i don't know if it did but you know some people suggest that when we created that it did push the discourse some and you know put a little more pressure saying look this should not be six hundred dollars if you can make it for 30. Mm-hmm. um the weird thing is that after that the the story got even more bizarre we saw heather brush getting up in front of congress and lying through her teeth um and then shortly after that, a whole batch of EpiPens started to fail. Mm-hmm. Wait, who is, who is this person who was talking in front of Congress online? Oh, Heather Bresch. She was the CEO of Mylan Pharmaceuticals okay. who manufacture the EpiPen mm-hmm. and, and set the price okay. as well. Um, and because of this public eye crowd, there was a congressional hearing and, you know, the, they dragged her up there and mm-hmm. she, she was happy to sit there and explain why you know. it's $600 and why that's perfectly reasonable. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so, so pen started failing. There was this, yeah. And, and this is part of what's so bizarre about it is that the EpiPens, they're single use. Mm-hmm. So you've got no way to know whether you've got a faulty one until you use it. Right. That's part of why they're sold in pairs is that like, okay, if one doesn't work, you should have the other one and use it, which of of course, yeah, right. If you've got, you know, hundreds of dollars and it's not a problem, you can just buy them. And they, you know, and they, they also, they go bad after 18 months and you have to Mm re-up. So. Is that because the epinephrine goes bad? Yeah. So this is the other thing is like, right. In addition to being testable, ours is also reloadable, like mm-hmm. reloaded just by putting fresh epinephrine in it. If you have raw epinephrine and you load it the way we do, you have to reload it every 90 days or so. Mm-hmm. The EpiPens last for months because they have a preservative and a preservative for the preservative. So hmm. they've got a slightly longer shelf life, but still it's finite. Mm-hmm. And so you have to deal with that. Okay. Um, and I've just heard these absolutely just heartbreaking stories about the EpiPens failing. There was some guy who was on a transatlantic flight and there's somewhere over the ocean. So there's nowhere to ditch land. Somehow the garbage airmark food was contaminated with something that his little daughter was allergic to. Mm-hmm. Her throat started to close up. He pulls out his trusty EpiPen. It fails. He pulls out the second one, and it also fails. And he just had to sit there and watch her die. Oh my god! Yeah, which is just kind of mind bending to yeah. think about. And like because again, you know, like a closed source thing that's sealed. Yeah, like you can't do anything. I mean theoretically if you were really diesel about it maybe you could like smash the thing with something hard and try and get it out but like yeah i 
I imagine he probably tried that and couldn't, you know, it was just, just like so, so tragic. Um, and so, you know, that's part of the thing that I think is so great about the Epi Pencil is like, you can test it as many times as you want, make sure it works. And, you know, you can, if it doesn't, if, if something goes wrong, you just unscrew the damn thing and you've got a syringe there. It's like, it's, it's, uh, it, yeah, you're, you're not going to have something that, you're sitting there with a tool where you're like the medicine's in here, but I can't get it out. Yeah. Um, What's well, interesting because so, it's, you get the, um, one of the things I've been running across, I've been doing a lot of gear research uh, about all kinds of shit as part of this podcast and some of the other work I'm doing. Ooh. And um, you know, I'm, I'm finding things out like that uh, $20 bicycle helmets function exactly as well in tests as $180 bicycle helmets. Right. And Ooh. And 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 that's not because they. I mean, it's it's actually because there's testing standards, and the twenty dollar ones meet the testing standards right. as well as they can, and then the hundred eighty dollar ones do too, because you know they're all just trying to make money. Um, right. But so that's not like inherently like cheaper is better, right? But at that point, yes, because you, you can get six people into bicycle helmets or you know eight, whatever. I can't do math. Um, you know, for the same price and nine people. Okay, yeah, nine people. Um. And and that's the thing that I've been running across over and over again is that there's this uh, this bias towards expensive in gear in general. Like you know, people are saying, for example, with um, uh, bulletproof vests, people are saying like you cannot use expired vests. Your life depends on it. You need to buy the six hundred dollar new vest. You cannot buy the two hundred dollar five year old Kevlar vest. Um, and right. testing indicates you can, you can use the $200 vest. And while in a perfect world, I would prefer to trust the thing that is like the newest and shiniest and best. I would rather that two of my friends also have vests than like me have the one, if the one is basically just as good. And so it's just kind of interesting to think about the Epi pencil as like, in this case, more functional, than the than the EpiPen uh -huh. because of the fact that it's not a black box, right? And it's really funny that you you say that because oftentimes when I'm in um, environments with people who are <laughs> think of themselves as politically progressive but mm -hmm. are fairly well to do and so mm -hmm. aren't practically, I, I would get approached by people who say, oh, hi, I know about the EpiPencil. I think it's really great what you did. My niece, daughter, aunt, whatever, has you know this condition where they go into anaphylaxis and they have to have them. It's really wonderful what you did. Thanks so much. And I say, uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so did you build one? And they go, <laughs> no i would never do that my god i buy them and i'm like yeah that's for the proletariat uh, it, it's been really nice chatting with you if you'll excuse me i have another appointment um it's 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 such a strange thing where here are people who understand at every level mm -hmm. why it's an not just an equal solution, but a better solution and how it helps on, you know, uh, not just a, uh, a, an individual health level, but a sociological level. Th these are really mm -hmm. sophisticated people, but there's this sort of like 
oh yes but uh, <laughs> oh darling not for me sorry you know it's like this like yeah really <laughs> um it's the charity mindset. So, right right and there's this and there's this that's mythology to which you refer mm-hmm. of sort of oh something that gets made in a factory far far away by like magical robots and everything will be flawless because it's got nice packaging and i don't have to think about it mm-hmm. the the thing that really drives that is the outsourcing of responsibility yeah when when you purchase something when you purchase a service when you have maintenance done then what's the the responsibility for something functioning or not lies on somebody else and it's not so much that people are less afraid that it will fail so much that they realize they can blame somebody else mm-hmm. in the event of a failure. And, and, and you see this all over the place. I mean, um, so, so you're in the United States, right? Yeah. So you undoubtedly know plenty of people with automobiles. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> if you think for a minute about the most basic level of maintenance, changing the oil on mm-hmm. a car, and changing the oil on a car is something that is necessary to do regularly, keep the car in good health. And it's a very simple process. You you unscrew one bolt and you drain out a liquid and then you screw the bolt back in and you refill it. I mean, and that's mm-hmm. the end. And yet... Don't change out the filter. About, yeah, right. I mean, if you want to take the extra step, you can unscrew the filter <laughs> and screw a fresh one. And yeah. yeah, sure. So like it, even that, yeah. though, if you think about that extra step of complexity, I mean, you know, yeah. if you're really into it, you put in a fresh gasket, like cool. But thinking about how simple that is, on even on the m- most complicated level, and then if you sort of run through the people you know and you think about how many people you know who actually go to that trouble rather than going and having it done Mm -hmm. the the percentage tends to be and you might have a way cooler friends uh, (laughs) who change their own oil but like when you think about people just that you know maybe not your friends but just people you know (laughs) most people have it done Mm -hmm. and again it's like well why why would you have something done that you could do yourself just as easily for cheaper and the answer again is this sort of in built fear of like well what if i did it wrong and it's mm-hmm. like well, what if you did it wrong have you thought about that right like, the people that you're hiring like, are also going to have a chance of doing it wrong and right and and like okay and and how wrong could it go mm-hmm. and 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 when you get down to brass tacks again it's this thing of like well if something went wrong i just take it back mm-hmm and that's sort of this attitude. And it's the same thing that people do with their health, where it's like the idea mm-hmm. is, oh, my body isn't working the way it should. I go to some expert, the doctor, and I say, fix it. And they then tell you what to do. And if it doesn't work, it's their fault. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that really drives this of like, if, if, I, if you sort of turn, there's this, subconscious idea of if you turn a blind eye to something you weren't involved 
And so if something's wrong, you don't have any culpability in the matter. Right. Um, which is really tragic because what it does is it gives over all of your agency in the most important aspect of your corporeal life mm -hmm. to an relatively arbitrary authority when, you know, when you could be doing a better job yourself, what's, usually. What's interesting, because I think about, you know, agency is one of the main reasons I'm an anarchist, for example, is, is this idea uh -huh. that, um, well, I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, I'm an anarchist because I'm uh, I'm in charge of me, and that doesn't seem like a radical position. Um, right. But I do think about, okay, so I get my oil changed, right? And the reason uh -huh. I get my oil changed is that the first time I got a car, I you know I bought a minivan, I moved into it, and I was like, I'm going to change my oil. I'm going to be that kind of girl. I'm going to change my own oil. And uh -huh. so I... So I, I buy oil, I buy a filter, I, I drive my car up onto a curb and, you know, and then I get under there with a wrench and then I realize that the bolt was machine tightened on. And because of the fact that it had been changed at a shop where they machine tighten on the bolt, I was not physically capable of getting the bolt off and changing the oil. So I had to go and get, oh. it, get it done. And then since then, I've had an unfortunate, I mean, it's different, it's different times, right? Like some of the cars that I've had are like, random pieces of shit where like, of course I'm the one fixing it. But then like sometimes a newer car is increasingly this black box where, you know, it's and they're designed that way. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think it's, it's both a relinquishing of agency and it's also a taking away of agency. But the, the thing that I'm, I'm interested in with what you're talking about is, you know, okay. So I also, I haven't had health insurance for most of my life. Um, uh -huh. I, I went about 20 years without health insurance, uh, this year was the first year I was able to be insured again. And, and so I got really used to not having health insurance and I got really used to, Oh, I don't know, like, you know, my ex-boyfriend's doctor now and I call him and I go, Hey, what is this rash? You know? Um, uh -huh. and he tells me that I, you know, anyway, um, but because I don't want, but there is a difference between talking to someone. I, I wonder if there's a sense of like, community DIY as compared to individual DIY, right? Because one of the reasons that I'm probably not going to start making medication personally, but I don't know, is that I'm 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 full up, right? There's a ton of stuff that I'm doing. And I would love to know how to do everything, but I but I can't. And but I would like to be able to go to someone who is going to treat me as a as a human who understands right. that at the end of the day, they are not the authority. They're not in charge of me. It's the same reason that like when I go to a mechanic, I go to a punk mechanic because a punk mechanic is going to look at my car and is going to say like, yeah, these are the things that are wrong. This is the most important. This is what you could probably do yourself. This is what you probably can't do yourself. You know, and and I, I try and do the same thing with my my medical needs. And so I'm, I'm interested in this... this um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess I'm thinking about it because I'm I'm just thinking about the the challenge that you're making about how we need to take control of our own lives, and yet I I kind of want to like figure out ways to do that non purely individualistically, you know? Yeah. So th there are there are layers to that, mm -hmm. and there are different strategies. The 
and the other thing about health that's important to recognize is that it's extremely broad and it's mm -hmm. extremely deep. And there are a lot of things that are broken in that interconnected web all the way from like the research scientist in the lab all the way to, you know, having the infrastructure to be able to take the bus to the clinic that might be able to help you out mm -hmm. and everything in between. And, you know, we're sort of looking at this one little chink in the armor that sort of, if everything else kind of works and you know what you need, but you somehow can't get it because it's priced out or it's illegal mm -hmm. or the infrastructure where you exist isn't present to just get it there like you could make it yourself. Right. Now, that to say, becoming more invested in your own health allows for you to get a greater quality of care in a mm -hmm. lot of cases. When you talk about community engagement in terms of manufacturing medications, it it reminds me of a very very surprising conversation that I had right when Fort Thieves came up from being an underground organization, our sort of debut thing in public was at uh, Hackers on Planet Earth. Uh, I believe it was 11. Mm -hmm. And I called Martin Shikarli from stage. Like I, you know, I, I managed to okay. find his cell phone and mm -hmm. I called him and it, you know, it was, it was, it was really fun. He didn't pick up the phone. For listeners, but, that's the person who's famous for jacking up the prices and all these things, right? Right. Yeah. So he, he, he was running Turing pharmaceuticals at the time mm -hmm. that had Daraprim, which is an anti-toxoplasmosis drug. that's very important for people with suppressed immune systems, pregnant mm -hmm. women um, who end up with toxoplasmosis and changed the price from $13 and 50 cents a pill to $750 a pill, mm -hmm. uh, literally from one day to the next, it was a really God. overnight shift. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it caused a lot of public outcry. So I, I, you know, we manufactured that drug on stage. <laughs> I threw pills to the audience. <clears throat> I called his phone and he didn't pick up the phone. But several hours later, he called me back. Mm -hmm. I, I was not expecting this at all. Uh-huh. But... You know, I since I found his phone number, I had it saved, and my little mm -hmm. phone comes up and it says Martin Shikrelli, and I'm like, "You've got to be kidding!" <laughs> and so I answered the phone, and he says Martin Shikrelli, and I said, "Hi, this is Michael Laufer," and he says, "Yeah, uh, how can I help you?" And I was like, "Well," <laughs> and I sort of I told him what I drug. was, yeah. Right. I told him what I was doing in sort of as non-confrontational language as I could generate mm -hmm. to see if we could have a conversation. Mm -hmm. And he kind of went, well, that's kind of cool. <laughs> I went, huh. <laughs> and I start describing what it is that we were trying to do with the micro lab. And he goes, yeah, well, I think that a good use case for that would be maybe somebody who knew a little bit more than the average person about chemistry, a little bit more than the average person about medicine, and maybe served a small community and it would work a little more efficiently that way. And, you know, my oh, mind is just blown. Uh -huh. And immediately, I mean, he, like 
for everything he is, he's not dumb. And he, right. to the fact that he had this really sophisticated thought about this just on first blush was kind of cool. And I thought, yeah, yeah you know, it would be nice that you, you might have the local apothecary on your block, mm-hmm. right? And somebody would be able to make you whatever you needed from time to time when you couldn't get it. Yeah. And, um, and, and so I think that that ultimately could be something, you know, the same way that currently uh, yeah, not everybody has their own 3d printer, but yeah, everybody knows somebody with a 3d printer and there are local maker spaces with a mm-hmm. 3d printer. And you can go to somebody and say, Hey, look, I don't really know about 3d printing, but would this be a part that you could make? And somebody can sort of look at it and be like, yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, here, leave it here and come back tomorrow and I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can make it for you. I, I think that that's, that's definitely plausible. Um, yeah. And I mean, that certainly is, again, better than what we've got now where yeah. you, you have the choice of either the pharmacy gives it to you because they decide you're allowed to have it and you pay them their blood money or... Um, they don't yeah so um if someone's yeah. trying to set up a, a micro lab what what's involved like financially like what kind of you know how step by step is it available to people with the work that you all have done yeah so we're we're close to releasing a new version that is much more accessible and much more user friendly. Mm-hmm. The new version, um, some details of which you can see in the talk that we gave at the most recent DEF CON, mm-hmm. um, there's no soldering required. Everything is snapped together and screw terminals. Mm-hmm. So immediately the barrier to access becomes a lot lower because it's not sort of this like, oh, you're already a hobbyist who likes to fix broken things. Right. But more like, can you assemble some parts after ordering them? Mm-hmm. Um, the central system is a Raspberry Pi and an Arduino. And then there are these shields that snap onto the headers and it's connected with cables and screw terminals and, if you want to 3d print a case that'll hold it all very nicely, you can, Mm -hmm. um, the simple version, you can sort of snap everything together. Um, again, during the talk, uh, the DEF CON talk in the background, it's running at like mm, two and a half times speed, but Mm -hmm. you see a guy over a course of about 20 minutes actually just assemble the entire micro lab and you can see what goes into it. And it's just not, that complicated there are a handful of things because the ultimately right the idea is that in most wet chemistry most of what you're doing is you add an ingredient you bring it to a particular temperature and you stir it for a certain amount of time Mm -hmm. and if you're doing that you know in a lab right yeah that can get very tedious and then you can forget about it and there are things that can go amiss if you're not attentive and so that's an easy thing to automate. And you say, okay, inject this much of this ingredient, bring it to this temperature and stir it for this long. And here's a little countdown clock. Okay. And that's basically all there is to it. And that's what the micro lab is doing is it's, it's keeping track of how, what temperature things are at and things like that. 
Right. And mm -hmm. so it has this sort of readout saying, okay, we're bringing it up to this temperature. There's a real time readout saying, mm -hmm. okay. And then it says, all right, now it's going to stir for six hours. And there's a little countdown clock showing that. Mm -hmm. And it walks you through things. It sort of tells you what step you're on. It tells you how much longer the entire reaction should take. And also sometimes it'll, it'll ask you to do sort of, you know, human checks where it says, mm -hmm. look at the solution. Is mm -hmm. it cloudy? Yes, no. And if you're like, no, it's clear. And it's like, okay, fine. Then nothing has gone wrong. Probably mm -hmm. continue. Um, <laughs> hey, oh, oh, it's cloudy. Something mm -hmm. went amiss. Throw it out. Start again. Um, so it's again, it's just, it's something to help you through because the thing again, very similarly, nothing's stopping anybody from reading a couple of organic chemistry textbooks, going online, buying glassware and doing wet chemistry the old fashioned way. Mm -hmm. It's just, that's scary. Yeah. And if you can put something that's just, it's just a little stepping stone that can help people do that with a little more forgiveness, yeah. something that allows people to feel like things aren't super delicate where if it worked, it was just a good stroke of luck. They actually had the machine helping them through it. Yeah. So two of the drugs that people bring up, um, one of them, for example, right now in the US, uh, at least as far as I know, I, I don't take testosterone. I sort of wish I had less of it. Um, but some of my transmasculine friends take testosterone. Yeah. And there appears to be a shortage of testosterone, at least as it filters down to uh, people who are getting their testosterone for free or from, you know, reduced cost, poor people, uh, trans yeah. healthcare. Um, and I'm aware of people in the abstract. I'm in the abstract aware that there are people who are like synthesizing estrogen and testosterone. Um, do you have randomly more information about that or how possible that is? Yeah. Um, so hormones are a little trickier mm, than regular mm -hmm. small molecule chemistry. Okay. Um, those are typically not things that you synthesize, but those mm -hmm. are things that you typically extract. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are ways to do that. And there are ways that are more punk rock to do that. So for instance, Mary magic is pretty famous for, her estrogen extraction where it's like everybody circles up and like, you know, pisses into a bucket mm -hmm. and then she takes a vodka bottle and breaks the bottom off and takes a bunch of cigarette filters and stuffs them in and then pours <laughs> methanol in and extracts what is at least ostensibly um, estrogen. Now listeners don't, very... don't do this until you do more research. <laughs> I mean, or the do thing it, is, is that that's, I mean, right. The thing is, is that's a proof of concept thing, mm -hmm. right? You are going to get a non-zero amount of estrogen out of that. Mm -hmm. How many other things also migrate through that? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, you're, it's going to be difficult to separate those. How pure is it? How much of it are you getting? And so if you're going to use it to self-administer, that's going to be tricky, but it's, it's it's a really important thing to sort of see that like this shouldn't be a big deal, mm -hmm. right? And if you wanted to go about this in a more um, calculated manner, 
it wouldn't mm-hmm. take a whole lot more, um, e- even though it would be slightly less uh, punk rock. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so there's there, there's also horrific estrogen shortages. I happen to be familiar with this one in particular mm-hmm. because the chemistry team figured out a way to make RU486, one of the abortion drugs, mm-hmm. out of estradiol. And I was super excited, but it turns out you can't get estradiol. And the reason for this, as best we can tell, like people just, you know, companies stopped manufacturing it. Mm-hmm. They stopped manufacturing it because it was no longer being used by postmenopausal um, women for hormone replacement therapy. It was only being used for... Oh. Um, trans people uh-huh. and because the u.s hates trans people they were just like well we're not making it anymore whoa okay i wish that it was surprised really me. weird yeah i yeah you and me both you and me both um it was really depressing to mm-hmm. figure that out and and see but again it's it's one of these things about the marketplace right where it's like they're not answerable to anyone. Mm-hmm. If nobody's manufacturing a medication, nobody's manufacturing medication, nobody's compelled to manufacture something mm-hmm. just because it's necessary. Mm-hmm. It's like people manufacture things because they think it's a good investment or, you know, feel good about it mm-hmm. morally because, you know, people are like them or whatever belong yeah. to their church or whatever it is that drives people's decisions who are in those decision-making um, positions of power. So, um, so back to the hormones thing, mm-hmm. it, in a very practical sense, if, if you're trying to get around the f- problem of finding um, sources of hormones, mm-hmm manufacturing it is possible but tricky the better way to go about it mm-hmm. from a purely practical standpoint would probably be to either purchase active pharmaceutical ingredients from a chemical supply house mm-hmm. that would supply it on a reagent basis saying not for human consumption, but their purity levels are sufficiently high that you could use it. Mm-hmm. Um, so something where, you know, if you're like, oh, I'm doing an experiment with rats and they'd be like, oh yeah, that's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, um, or getting it, you can also sometimes get these sorts of things for veterinary use. Uh, there are a lot of, and again, the the legality and the trustability of sourcing becomes variable here, right. right? But there are plenty of people who give steroids to their horses because they want them to be, you know, mm-hmm. stronger and faster. And yeah, you know, if you get something that's designed for mammals like that, it's mm-hmm. as long as it's the same thing, like, yeah, that's probably fine. Well, that gets um, into an interesting... Uh, comparison to the like cheaper is better argument I was making earlier, sometimes it becomes Ooh. more of this like cheaper is the option rather than like cheaper is better, right? Like in this case, I would probably rather have for human consumption like hormones than, than not for human consumption hormones, right? But uh... when you get into this like kind of, one of the things that's sort of interesting is that I think a lot of us are looking at 
the world from a lot more cyberpunk and an apocalyptic point of view right now where we're looking yeah. at things from the point of view of like not we'll take what we can get but we'll like fight for what we can get and like maybe there's a lot of like things that we don't get guarantees on in this world and so maybe there's certain things that we're going to choose to do anyway um which actually sort of is a similar thing to the previous thing i was saying about like used kevlar vests as compared to you know new ones or whatever yeah and it's i mean so when you're looking for that sort of thing it's good so so for anybody out there who's thinking of doing this sort of thing the thing mm -hmm. to do is to familiar familiarize yourself with what the gradations of purity are and mm -hmm. why those particular stamps go on those things so when you see something that is usp which is united states pharmacopoeia mm -hmm. that's you can if you had licenses to manufacture a drug in the US, this is something that you could include. Mm -hmm. um, when you see things that have that stamp, that's mostly, I mean, it's gonna be an order of magnitude more expensive. Mm -hmm. And most of that price is modulated by the extremely Byzantine oversight process that in theory is working, mm -hmm. which doesn't work super well anyway. But what happens is if somebody who's manufacturing an active pharmaceutical ingredient wants USP stamp on their product, they have to subject themselves to a bunch of tests, do a whole bunch of internal review. There's a quality control level that goes way up. Certain impurities are not acceptable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as you go sort of down in the gradations, there's less of that. Okay. So you can look at lower things. You you know, there's and, and there's overlap too. This is the other thing. It's not a pure hierarchy. There are these different labels and they mean different things, but there's there's lab grade and reagent grade and industrial grade and <clears throat> And there are different percentages of impurities. And basically what you want is you want something that's relatively pure and something where the impurities are nothing that are toxic. Mm -hmm. And that's about it. And if you can find something that falls into that bracket, you can probably pay a tenth the price and get something that's fairly cheap. And this happens all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and at the same time, if, 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 again, that is something that feels discomforting, you can pay the extra and mm -hmm. you can just call Sigma Aldrich and say, I'd like this and USP grade and mail it to me. And then you can just, you know, put it into your, your pill press or put it into caplets or, mm -hmm. you know, dissolve it in water and inject it or whatever, however it is that you are administering whatever the, the <laughs> drug is you want. Um, the other thing is, is that again, because you specify the question of working with hormones, mm -hmm. um, specifically testosterone, testosterone's extraordinarily easy to get in very high quality because it's used by bodybuilders the world over. Mm -hmm. And so if, if that's something that you're looking for and you don't mind going a little bit underground, like just go to a gym and look for somebody who looks like <laughs> they are, are jacked in a, in a mm -hmm. slightly unnatural way mm -hmm. and be like, Hey, listen, um, 
I'm looking for some juice. Yeah. To, can you connect me? And like, it's, it's just not that tricky. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So the other, the other two drugs that I want to ask, and then I have one more larger question. Um, yeah, go ahead. So the other two drugs are insulin and thyroid pills. Are these things that people have a chance in hell of being able to make in an apocalyptic or, uh, you know, a scenario where they're not available commercially? Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> the, the, there are trade-offs, however, in terms of how difficult that is. And, and again, how mm-hmm. you're, what you're willing to do and how you're, how you want to go about it. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, both of those things are biologics. And so mm-hmm. it, the, the sort of stuff that we do is not going to be particularly helpful. Okay. Um, but yes. Um, so I, I would encourage everybody who's interested in insulin to go look up the open insulin project. Mm-hmm. These are some very, very, very sophisticated cats who are, doing really, really, really good work. And they've gotten to the point where they have actually created a genetically modified microorganism that churns out insulin. Okay. Cool. And you can, uh, their current technical problem, as I remember it um, when I last spoke with them, is that they're just trying to get the filtering to work um, so that, you know, you're not, you don't have a bunch of dead bacteria along with your insulin. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- but uh, I think that they're probably going to have that problem cracked in, I don't know, another 18 months or so. And it's mm-hmm. going to make a huge difference for diabetics all over the world. And it's really encouraging to see. Okay. Um, that said, you know, you can even downshift to more, I hate to use the word primitive, but less uh, technically less developed. sophisticated yeah. techniques. Yeah, or, or requiring less less technique and less mm-hmm. infrastructure. There's this incredible story of a woman, and she was somewhere over here in Southeast Asia. I don't quite remember if it was uh, it was somewhere fairly rural. Um, I don't remember if it was Korea or China, but the story was, is that she had a daughter who was diabetic and she had no way of getting insulin. And she just went and made a deal with the local butcher. Mm-hmm. And this is like an old school butcher who was getting animals and slaughtering them and then taking everything. Mm-hmm. And the pancreases were getting thrown away and she just said, look, I'll pay you for this that you would normally throw away if you'll just set them aside for me. Mm-hmm. And she essentially like mashed them up and did an extraction and made insulin for her kid for years and years. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to remember that these, these sorts of things were done this way originally. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first extraction or one of the first extractions of of estrogen was from horse urine mm-hmm. um i think there was one actually from maybe wild yam that even came earlier so again all these old methods 
still work. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's instructive to look at the history and say, okay, how was this done when it was first done? Right. And when you say, oh, well, this was done a hundred years ago by somebody who had almost nothing and was just using what they could find. Well, guess what? That stuff still works. Mm-hmm. And given what's accessible, you could probably do it better than they did it more easily and more cheaply. Right. Because you have um, the advanced knowledge available to you, even if you don't have the advanced uh, extraction process available to you. Right. And like, and still, you might have a better extraction process than mm-hmm. was available 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's maybe not the latest and greatest, but like, if you're just, you just need to get it done, get it done. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the, the biohacking credo is close enough is close enough. Right? <laughs> um, and so, so in terms of extracting insulin, yeah, there are ways to do that and there are sources for it. And it depends on, you know, how, uh, how touchy things are. Cause that's the other thing is, is, uh, you know, usually people are very careful in terms of monitoring how much they're taking at what point and mm-hmm. like what the, what their insulin levels are, what their blood glucose levels are. And, you know, that's another thing where it's like, well, really cool if you have a continuous blood glucose monitor and then you can check that sort of thing and you right. have the luxury of being able to know where it's going to land rather than sort of doing this back of the envelope calculation, measuring your insulin and then crossing your fingers, hoping that you don't end up in shock or coma. Right. Um, Also, I guess that gets into the like this. I mean, a lot of what we talk about here is not like on this podcast is not like the way that things ideally work, but sometimes the way that they have to work, you know, when we're in moments of crisis. Right. Of course. Yeah. You know, you're, 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 you're running in this sort of realm where sure, ideally the infrastructure would serve you. Mm -hmm. And if you are diabetic, you have all the insulin you needed provided to you for free because you need it. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) there wouldn't have to have a, a conversation with a doctor more than like one time to be like, Oh, right. You're diabetic. So you should have insulin. Nice to meet you. Um, and, and, and like my own personal views on the non essentiality of infrastructure aside, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's important to recognize the fact that most people operate within a lot of different mechanisms of infrastructure Mm -hmm. and are more comfortable within those mechanisms of infrastructure. And like, so great, you know, ideally the infrastructure would just work and I, you know, four thieves wouldn't have to exist. Right. Right. And everybody would just get all the goddamn medications they needed and it would be fine. But there's the, these gaps, um, which are totally needless and, and yet we're stuck with them. And so we need to find these, these workarounds, whatever they are. And again, they're, they're sort of the spectrum, right? You can, you can get the medications pre-manufactured from somebody who doesn't check to see that you have the licenses to buy them. Mm-hmm. You can get the ingredients and then you can just compound the pills yourself. You could get some reagents and do some chemistry and, and manufacture it you can go out and try and 
find natural sources to extract from and hopefully mitigate whatever it is that you're right. trying to modulate. So, so what what yeah. can you all like? Okay, so if I keep asking you about biologics by accident, and I assume thyroid is also a biologic. Um, yeah, it is. But again, that same sort of thing where it's like most like so T three and T four I think are the main things that people who have um, hypothyroidism are usually given, mm-hmm. and those are I think even today, those are still manufactured by taking, I think it's bovine or porcine thyroid and just grinding it up and running an extraction. So, and, you know, in theory, again, if you have a a friendly neighborhood butcher Mm -hmm. who sells awful cheap, you could be like, Hey, listen, (laughs) I'm looking for thymus and Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm making I make sweetbreads every week <laughs> and I'd like some help. Yeah. So, okay. So what, what kind of, so wet chemistry is, is a, I, it's clear that I am not a um, science major. Um, so wet chemistry is like a, a fairly different thing and you're building fairly different things. This is more like in the terms of like, is this how I would be building my own like antidepressant medication? Is this how I would be building? Like, what are the kinds of things that people do obviously no one would ever break the law with anything that you build but if someone were to make their own medicine with this thing that you do to, so that people can make their own medicine what kind of things are people making um so in theory things that are generally small molecules mm-hmm. are accessible now there are different levels of complexity sometimes mm-hmm. things are a little messier especially when you have isomers and strange stereochemistry problems but in general the idea is if if you've got something where you look it up and the chemical structure is small enough that you can kind of sketch it on a cocktail napkin mm-hmm. you can probably get there um the the targets so for instance the one that we targeted at the very beginning was Daraprim, um, the active ingredient of which is pyrimethamine. Mm-hmm. And when you look at pyrimethamine, like what does this drug do? So this is the antitoxoplasmosis drug. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you look at that, it's a very small molecule. It's mm-hmm. very simple. It's symmetric. It's um, it's what you'd call flat. Um, it's it's not really flat, but it's it's something that doesn't have strange geometry or or three-dimensional structure where the handedness matters um so that one is fairly easy to crank out Mm -hmm. um we managed to do some computational chemistry and find a simpler pathway to manufacturing it Mm -hmm. so it required fewer steps and again you have you know, trying to optimize that sort of thing on the front end um, is one of the things that we spend a lot of energy doing so that you have greater margins for error, mm-hmm. higher yields, higher purity. Um, so so that's a good example. The other things that we're like trying to work on include, um, again, mifepristone and misoprostol. And those are coming from precursors that sometimes easy to find sometimes harder what drugs um, are those again, those are the ones that 
uh, are the abortive fashion mm -hmm. drugs that you would take if you're trying to induce miscarriage. Which are unfortunately increasingly more interesting to more people in the United States. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's getting, it's getting scary and yeah. sad really fast. Um, and, you know, and, uh, and a whole handful of other countries where for mm -hmm. bizarre, mostly ideological reasons, bear to reproductive health are increasingly strong. Yeah. Um, so again, those are, those are things that you can make from other things if mm -hmm. those are accessible. Again, the weird thing being like, if the precursors aren't accessible, then you're kind of out of luck. Okay. Um, so another example of one of those, which is slightly simpler, was naloxone, mm -hmm. which re reverses opiate overdose. Mm -hmm. It's this just... At, as, as far as miracle drugs go, this one qualifies pretty high. Yeah. Right? it's it's amazing what it's able to do and the thing is is that it's when we first started looking at it accessibility was a really big question because typically uh, again in the united states you couldn't get it unless you went to a police station or a hospital mm -hmm. and now it's fairly available right now it's a lot better again it's state by state mm -hmm. um so we sort of put that on a back burner because it was becoming more available. And the other thing was that it was really hard to get the precursors because naloxone has a structure that's so similar to mm. the opiates themselves. The precursors are the same precursors that you would use if you were manufacturing opiates. So they're very, very, very highly controlled. Okay. So that's more of an, an apocalyptic scenario or a scenario where you're no longer concerned with the rule of law. Right. I mean, assuming one were concerned with the rule well, of law to begin with. Strategically, I believe that uh, I believe in the law in the way that I believe that it exists and it tries to limit me. Um. That I think is very well put. It's it's important to recognize that it, it despite the fact that it is a social construct, mm -hmm. that there are people who uh, utilize it as a justification for a all manner of things. Right. Um, so one of the things that we did do with that though, is again, the chemistry team had this stroke of brilliance where mm -hmm. they said, well, while it's hard to get precursors to opiates, getting opiates is really easy. <laughs> yeah. And they figured out <laughs> that if you take oxycodone, mm -hmm. you can make that into naloxone in two steps. Uh, there was this, <laughs> transformation you can do where you can make uh oxycodone into oxymorphone mm -hmm. which was discovered by drug dealers in the 90s because it's about i don't know between four and eight times more powerful mm -hmm. um with like an 80 something percent yield so this is a way that you could just make a lot more money with mm -hmm. the same amount of product with a little bit of chemistry and it was fairly simple mm -hmm. and then from oxymorphone you can make that into naloxone in one step and it was it was so hilarious because it was the it wasn't hope eleven but it was hope twelve where um, we actually debuted that reaction and after I gave the talk I was leaving the hotel Pennsylvania mm -hmm. and the doorman like offered to sell me oxy. <laughs> Like right then, I was like, "Couldn't you have offered this to me on the way in? This would have been great to do on stage." Uh -huh. you know, but 
uh, it, the the irony was pretty thick. Just that you yeah. know, and I remember saying, "Yeah, because you can get Axie on every street corner." And like literally, as I was leaving the hotel, the doorman right. was trying to sell me Oxy. It was insane. Right. Um, okay, so, so I, I, go ahead. I have one question <clears throat> left. Um, kind of running out of time, uh, and I, I know a little bit the answer because I googled this before talking to you, but. What is Four Thieves Vinegar, and what is, where does that name come from? Uh, so there's this wonderful little tidbit of history that comes from the plague times in Europe where there was some thief that was going through plague-ridden areas and just burgling, robbing mm-hmm. people blind. <laughs> and this was terribly confounding to everybody because nobody in their right mind went into plague ridden areas because Mm. it was basically a death sentence. And yet there was somebody who was going in and doing this fearlessly Mm -hmm. and they were doing it over and over and over again. And theories abounded about what might or might not have been happening and they couldn't figure it out. And eventually they were caught. And it was a group of four brothers. Mm-hmm. And the magistrate in power said, we're going to hang you all. Or you can tell us how you've been moving in and out of plague-ridden areas without getting sick. Mm-hmm. And they said, uh, we'd like option B. Yeah. <laughs> and... As it turned out, their mother was, uh, you know, a wise woman. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I imagine, like, if anybody had known and not attributed her with this great healing knowledge, they probably mm. would have burned her as a witch. But she understood that there was a way that you could use antimicrobials to, you know, fight off something that was a, uh, uh, an, an infectious agent. Mm-hmm. And so she made a decoction of a bunch of different herbs in vinegar. And she made her four sons uh, scrub their skin with it as well as drink it. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, right, a lot of people at first blush say, well, like, well, what's the big deal a couple of things that are antimicrobial. And if you think back to medieval Europe where sanitation kind of wasn't a thing, mm-hmm. like just giving yourself a little bit of edge that way was enough. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you talk to herbalists, everybody will claim that they have the recipe mm-hmm. for four vinegar. <laughs> and everybody's recipe is different, mm-hmm. but it's basically the same sort of thing where it's like, okay, you know, clove oil, you know, probably garlic, you know, and mm-hmm. a number of other sort of, it's um, fire cider. Right. Yeah. Wormwood, uh, a number of other things that yeah, okay. just more interesting are going to be yeah. rough on, you know, small organisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's that's the four thieves vinegar. Those are the four thieves. And so the reason that we named our organization after them was the idea that 
just the spreading of this knowledge was enough to save a bunch of people's lives because they were able to make it themselves mm-hmm. and take care of themselves. And so we feel a certain spiritual ancestry with that phenomenon of if people just know how to make their own medicine, they can make their own medicine and keep themselves from dying. Yeah. I think that's great. And the thing that I was I was thinking about when I was I was reading about Four Thieves before talking to you is I'm really interested in how it's it's folk medicine, right? But it's taking you're applying a folk medicine concept to essentially to allopathy, you know, and to yes. and that that's fascinating. I I love destroying dichotomies and destroying a dichotomy between folk medicine and allopathy and naturopathy and and allopathy is is brilliant to me. And part of it that seems poetic to me is the, the circularity of it, because Mm -hmm. if you pick up a pharmaceutical textbook and you flip to a random entry, you have like a two thirds to three quarters chance that when you read what is the mechanism of action of this drug? It typically says the mechanism of action of this drug is not yet understood. And the (laughs) reason for that is because most of those come from folk remedies and it was Mm -hmm. just, Oh, well, we know this works. And so we're just Mm -hmm. going to concentrate it and put it in a pretty pill and sell it. And the idea of taking it back and making it our own again, eh, feels really good. All right. Well, I think we're we're out of time, but uh, I really appreciate all of this. So, if anyone is looking to set up a micro lab or learn more about this, how do they how do they do that? Well, uh, we do have our website up. It's it's mm-hmm. minimal, but we try to post things when we can. We're going to do a bunch of updates soon, so stay tuned. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's fourthievesvinegar.org, and I'm. Uh, also available on Twitter if you want to chat with me in particular. Um, we've got accounts that we're trying to set up on other social media platforms for Four Thieves, not me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also poke around, and a lot of the talks that we've given are available on YouTube, so you can see some of the stuff that we've done over the years. And there also is a web form on our website if you want to write to us directly and get in touch. Uh, always looking to make new friends and help people out. So don't hesitate to give us a howdy. Cool. Well, uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, uh, please tell people about it. Please let the algorithms that shouldn't run the world make more people aware of this podcast. And you can do that by liking and subscribing and doing all of those various things and telling people about it just by whatever means. And that's been happening more and more, and it's it's really great. There's a lot of new listeners, and I hope you all are getting something out of it. You can also support this show more directly by supporting me on Patreon. My Patreon is patreon.com slash margaretkilljoy. I put up about a zine every month and a bunch of other things. And in particular, I'd like to thank Chris and Nora and Haas the dog and Kirk and Willow and Natalie and Sam Christopher, Shane, and The Compound for making this possible. I really appreciate it. All right, well, I will talk to you all soon, and I hope that you have a pleasant and wonderful week, despite everything that's happening and despite your better judgment.